Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, this podcast episode is brought to you by our sponsor, St. Gaster. So are you looking at getting your product into the hands of the right people, the people that are going to absolutely love it? Did you know that podcast advertising is literally 4.4 times more effective than the traditional display type of advertising? So if you're looking at really using podcast advertising, you may want to connect with Sencaster. So they've created this thing. It's called the Sencaster Podcast Marketplace, where you can connect as a brand or a company with the right type of creators. And again, you know, via Sencaster, you can connect with people like myself, where essentially we are putting ads of the brands and the companies that we absolutely love. So again, if you are interested in doing this, just go to sen.ai forward slash dealmakers1, and that is a number one. And again, the team at Sencaster will be able to guide you in the right direction. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So very exciting interview that we have today. I mean, a founder that has been there, done it, I mean, now multiple times, we could say, and the first company that he did, first exit, he actually sold it to Google. So I think that without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Andrew Brown. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Alejandro. I appreciate you inviting me on today. So born in South Carolina. So give us a little bit of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Yeah. I mean, I had a, a wonderful childhood. I was really fortunate. Um, as you mentioned, uh, I was born and raised in, in Greenville, South Carolina, in the upstate. That's uh, right in the, the foothills of the Blue Ridge and uh, in Appalachian Mountains. Um, so had a well, a pretty typical, you know, suburban Southern childhood. Uh, a lot of my extended family is down on the coast in Charleston. So I spent a fair amount of time on the water, on the ocean too. And uh, yeah, it was just a, a wonderful time. So uh, talking about, you know, family too, I mean, both of your parents in employment law. So, I mean, how was, how was, how was that? Because I mean, I'm sure that there was a lot of uh, very interesting, you know, who is right and who's wrong, you know, kind of, uh, you know, conversations in the house with all this uh, legal stuff going on. Yeah. You know, I don't know that most people would say that interesting is the right word for it, because when both of your parents do, you know, generally speaking, the same type of employment law, it means that all of the dinner table conversations uh, tend to revolve around what's going on and whatever given case they're looking at, that sort of thing, which, you know, when you're eight years old is maybe not the, uh, you know, prime topic that uh, that you want to be talking about as opposed to whatever cartoon is, is on TV or, or that sort of thing. Um, but it's something that is, uh, you know, we'll, we'll get to it with uh, my current company, Check, but it's something that certainly has come back around to be, I think, actually incredibly helpful to me in terms of actually understanding the way that the economy works and the world works and how law plays into that, um, which is a big part now of, of what we do here at Check. And, and with all this law going on in the house, I mean, how did you decide to take uh, opposite direction and, and go into computer science and economics? <laughs> I think probably like uh, a lot of folks my age, it really started with games. Uh, you know, I was uh, bored in elementary and middle school and so started playing games on uh, on first the original Nintendo and then the Nintendo 64 and, and then uh, on on the computer and, you know, I was building little guilds and things with my friends. And so I think that really, you know, started my interest in and, and love of technology. Um, I didn't 
really pursue it though. I wasn't the kid in high school that, you know, was taking, you know, every possible programming class. Um, I think I needed a little, a little spark, a little something to get me going. Uh, and for me, that was the iPhone. The iPhone came out uh, right around the time that I got to college and just absolutely blew my mind. I think more or less watching the, uh, the intro keynote, uh, I realized this was something that was, was going to change the world and that I wanted to be a part of in, in some way, shape or form. And so that really kickstarted, you know, my, you know, interest in computers. And, and talking about the entrepreneurial journey, I mean, it's kind of interesting the way that the, the way that it happened for you, because right after school, you did a very short stint at Google. And then from there, you went at it as an entrepreneur. So what was that? sequence of events that happen. Yeah. You know, as we talked about, I'm from South Carolina. My parents are lawyers. Uh, I, I'm not one of these people that grew up in Silicon Valley or, or knew that I wanted to necessarily start a, a startup or a tech company from an early age. To be honest, halfway through college, I don't think I knew what a startup was or what a venture capitalist was. Uh, you know, it certainly wasn't something that was in my plans. So, as I got more interested in technology, as I learned how to code, as I started building some iPhone apps, uh, from there, I was, you know, like any college student, I was looking for a job. There was one summer that I was, you know, waiting tables uh, at a, a sort of an Oceanside uh, diner. Uh, the next summer, uh, I was interning for Microsoft uh, and then full time right out of school, ended up taking that job at Google. And so at the time, that for me was an amazing accomplishment. It was, you know, what I'd been dreaming about it, you know, help me pay back student loans, uh, you know, that sort of thing. But after, you know, six or nine months there, it was pretty clear to me, I missed that energy of building something from scratch of getting a, a you know, scrappy team together from the early days to go, you know, take on something big. And so I was eager to, to really get back to that environment, which I felt like I'd been in more in college. And why, why did you decide to go with Oyster? I mean, obviously, I say, as engineers, you always have the weekend projects, you know, as they would say, you know, you have like your little things that you're working on. So how did you go from maybe like a little project to I'm going to go for this one? Yeah, it was two things. It was the idea and the people. Um, I'll start with the idea. I've always been a big reader. As a kid, I, you know, Frankly, I was a nerd and I loved walking into the library and feeling like just really the world's knowledge was was really at my fingertips there. I thought that was just such a cool feeling to be able to go pick up any book off the shelf, open it and start reading it. And um, as technology came along and improved and Kindle came out and the iPad came out, I was doing more and more electronic reading. But that same experience had been lost. If I wanted to pick up something and read it, I had to go pay, you know, 10, 15, 20 bucks to do that. And is a big user of Netflix and Spotify. I felt like that same type of all access, um, you know, subscription experience should exist in the book world, should be something more like what the uh, the public library used to be able to provide. And I didn't see any reason why that wasn't feasible to build. And so, um, you know, we then set out to, uh, to go and make that. Now, what was that uh, process of really working on this and, and that day when you submitted it to the, to the app store? Yeah. So, uh, it was the, the first year, year and a half, uh, I'd say, of, of Oyster was a journey. I always warn people about this. I think, you know, quitting your job, getting started, writing those first few lines of code is is always really fun. That was true of Oyster. It's been true here of Czech as well. But, you know, then there's that period where you don't have anything yet. <laughs> you know, you don't have any customers. The app doesn't work. It's crashing. You're trying to figure things out. Uh, those can be, be dark periods, uh, certainly for Oyster. 
the publishing world, I think at times thought we were crazy. You know, you're these 22, 23 year old kids and you're going to try and sort of set up a new business model for these publishing houses that have been around for you know, literally in some cases, 150 years, uh, you know, they weren't necessarily interested in, in new business models. So it was unclear if we were ever going to launch. Um, but eventually we, we managed to, you know, we managed to sign some really big deals, including with big publishers like HarperCollins and Simon and & Schuster and others. And so, uh, you know, we got to this point where after this, you know, it was a year and a half plus of really, really late nights and hard work where you know, we had the books. I remember opening the app for the first time and seeing like these real books that I do and that you'd see in Barnes and Noble, like actually there, uh, you know, it worked, it wasn't crashing and then actually hitting, as you mentioned, that submit button uh, into the app store. And if you've ever done this, but it takes a little while, you don't hit submit and it's immediately available. So, you know, then you're every you know, a few minutes going into the app store and trying to search for the name of the app, searching Oyster and seeing if anything comes up. And I remember I didn't sleep at all that night. It was probably 5.45 in the morning when finally I, you know, typed in Oyster and, and the app actually appears there in the store and, and you can go and get it. And that was just, it was just such a rewarding moment of feeling like this thing that we've been, you know, putting so much of our energy into, uh, you know, over that first year and a half is, is finally available here. And and for the people that are listening to really get it, what what ended up being the business model of Oyster? How were you guys making money there? Yeah, so we were a subscription service, um, as I mentioned, much like uh, Netflix or Spotify. So you paid us $10 a month um, and you got access then to all of the books in our catalog. So obviously we made money on that subscription fee uh, and then our costs where we paid out to uh, to the publishers for that content. And in terms of, you know, I know that with your parents, you know, at the beginning, probably they were like a little bit like, hey, what, what is our son doing? Like leaving Google, like such a reputable company and, and starting something from nothing. I know that appearing on the Today Show was a, you know, it marked a, you know, quite the moment where they realized that perhaps you were into something here. So, so how was, how was that, how was that moment like? Yeah, it was, it was really cool. And, and. I'll share two stories with you here. The first one was actually before that launch moment. And we were maybe nine months into the company and we were trying to ship the first um, essentially beta version of the app to our investors and a few of our friends. And for some reason that I would recommend no one else do, uh, we sort of set our own internal goal of making sure we had shipped that by Christmas. Uh, and we were determined to make sure that we, we actually hit our goals and hit our dates. And so uh, I was home with my family and, you know, went to our Christmas service or whatnot and came home. It's nine o'clock at night and then proceeded to basically pull an all-nighter over Christmas Eve and, and into Christmas in order to actually finish this app and, and ship the beta version of it. And this was, you know, a year prior. My parents had seen me at Google and with this nice job and the whole thing. And they're like, what is this guy doing? You know, he is has lost his mind. Clearly, he's excited about it, but uh, you know, it is it's really taken over his life, and and you know, we have no idea if this is going to go anywhere. Fast forward a year, uh, I'm back home again for Christmas, and uh, and we've just been featured uh, on the Today Show. Actually, as one of the sort of recommended holiday gifts, uh, you know, of that season. And my mom's always been a, a big watcher of the Today Show while she gets ready in the morning. And I think, you know, seeing our son's app, you know, featured on there is it, it really was the moment when it really clicked for them as to, oh, hey, you know, this uh, might actually be a thing. It might go somewhere. And that was that uh, was a really, really cool, you know, personal moment for me. Now, how did you all go about capitalizing the business? Yeah. So at Oyster, we raised a couple of rounds uh, of funding, uh, the first one from Founders Fund uh, and then later raised uh, another round from uh, from Highland Capital as well. 
And what was that uh, journey like of uh, going through an acquisition? Because, I mean, when you go through the acquisition and it's done and, you know, you've done the full cycle, I think that to a certain degree gives you visibility, you know, into the fact that it's possible and that you can do it as well. Uh, so, so how was that process like for you all, the acquisition with Google? Yeah, I learned a tremendous amount. I think, first of all, <laughs> what I realized is that, you know, companies are bought they're not sold. And so we were fortunate that we had at Oyster built a, a service and an app that it was really beloved by its users. Um, I think the folks at Google saw that and it piqued their interest. And so they had reached out to us several times over the years to uh, to try and get a conversation started about you know what it might look like um, to combine forces. I think that was the, the first piece. Um, I think the second piece I learned, though, is that uh, it's still a, a hard thing to do well. I think acquisitions actually have a lot of respect for companies that that really are good at doing that because across the the business side of it, the the human people side, it's challenging. You have different cultures, you know, different strategies, uh, you know, different teams, you know, kind of working towards different goals. Being able to actually pull that together, you know, into an alignment uh, and create actually one team that's all working together is something that you know took a lot of late nights and hard work and and long conversations. Uh, and I think it was really feeling like we had that same shared vision that uh, that you know ultimately convinced us to do the deal. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. I got to tell you that. You know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieverson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com and we would love to take a look at helping you out. So there in Google, you actually were for a few years doing the integration and as they call it, the vesting and resting. But, uh, but obviously, once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. So tell us about your next baby, Check. So uh, how the idea of Check, you know, come knocking and, and, and what was that process of, hey, you know what? It's the time. It's the, the time has come to do it again. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll start with the latter part of that. It, it was pretty clear to me that the time had come to do it again fairly early on uh, in my journey at Google. I'm an entrepreneur at heart, and I love building things from scratch. Um, but I didn't know what was going to be next. And so I spent the better part of, of two plus years um, really talking with my friends and doing a bunch of research and, and trying to figure out you know, what that next journey was. Um, 
which ultimately led us to check. And, and the, I think companies come from different places. Sometimes it's a personal passion. You know, sometimes it's, um, you know, a problem that you see in your current job and you're just annoyed that no one's built a tool to solve it. Um, in our case, uh, check really came from um, some of our earliest customers. Um, we happened to uh, know some folks who had built platforms that served small businesses and they had a pain point, which was payroll. So just to illustrate this a little bit, um, if you rewind 10 plus years ago, as a small business owner, your business wasn't really online. Maybe you had a credit card terminal if you were lucky. Um, but beyond that, you know, you had a manual cash register, more than likely you were calling your suppliers and managing your, your workforce was, and I, and I know this having worked in a diner at one point, it was a piece of paper on the wall that said, you know, Andrew's working on Monday and Alejandro's working on Tuesday, that sort of thing. And what we saw from talking with our friends and, and seeing the change in the landscape over the last 10 years is that that's now totally different. A huge number of these small businesses now have some piece of software that they use as their system of record, whether it is um, a piece of, of workforce management software like Homebase, one of our early customers, or whether it's more vertically specific, um, a company like Service Titan, another of our customers that serves sort of plumbers and electricians and those types of businesses. Um, and so as a result of these companies all coming online and all adopting uh, these new platforms, the way they manage their business day to day had changed. But the way they managed payroll had not changed. Um, they were managing their workers and clocking in and out and the time for those workers uh, in these new software platforms and then basically exporting spreadsheets and uploading those into legacy payroll players. And, and I truly didn't believe it when I first heard about it. They were spending hours every Friday dealing with this and uh, you know, having to fix and correct you know, overtime amounts and that sort of thing. And we, we saw the problem and, and realized, hey, if we can actually create a service that enables these platforms to offer payroll to these small businesses, um, it'll be both an amazing business for, for these platforms and it'll enable these, these small business owners to focus on what matters for them, which is, you know, getting more customers, running their business, not trying to figure out how to deal with taxes and, and pay their workers. So what was that process like of um, getting the founding team together? For Check, it was very much to get the band back together type of a process. So my two co-founders here, um, one of them, Eric Stromberg, uh, was my co-founder and, and our CEO uh, at Oyster. Um, and my other co-founder here, Vivek Patel, um, our CTO, was the second engineer that I hired back at Oyster. So in both cases, we had worked together for many years at this point. I had wanted to work with them both uh, again and, and knew really, regardless of what I did, that they were, you know, right at the top of my list of, of folks I wanted involved. And so in this case, in many ways, it actually went the other way. We actually kind of got the team together uh, and then spent, you know, quite a while looking for what the, uh, the right idea was going to be to go after. And in this case, why going from CTO to CEO? How was that the transition for you? Yeah, it was a very natural one, to be honest. At Oyster, myself, Eric, and our third co-founder, Willem, really ran that business as a bit of a triumvirate. So I was not your typical CTO that was spending all of my time coding. Certainly, I spent a lot of time doing that, but was very involved in the fundraising and in uh, negotiating our deals with our publishers and doing the modeling to figure out how much we should be paying them, you know, those sorts of things. And so 
you know, have that you know, business generalist mind and, and interest as well. And so um, I, I really knew, I think, coming out of that, that I felt like I had built the technical skills in that experience, but it wasn't where my passion lie in terms of what I wanted to do next. And so, you know, I think stepping into to the CEO seat here, especially for the first couple of years, felt very natural. I felt like I knew how to do that job uh, based on what we had done at, at Oyster. And and here, so that the people that, that are listening get it, how, how are you guys making money? What is the model here with Check? Yeah, we partner with these software platforms, as I mentioned, like Homebase and like Service Titan. They build new payroll services on top of us. So Service Titan Payroll Pro being an example of one of those. Um, and then they pay us based on the number of companies and employees um, that they're actually processing through that payroll service. So um, it's entirely usage-based, and we are very much um, partnered with and aligned with our customers, where as they build their payroll business, uh, you know, Check makes more money from that. And now having gone through the uh, full cycle with the previous company, with Oyster, I mean, now you had full visibility into what was needed in order to get to the finish line and to kind of like reverse back engineer the process to get there. And I think that people, especially when you're thinking about investors, is critical. So in terms of now going at it again and thinking about capitalizing the business, how were you thinking about really assembling that team of investors as well? Yeah, it's something that I thought a lot about. I think the first thing that I really realized is that, you know, I don't want to discount how important it is just to raise the capital and have the money. But I think that's not necessarily, well, it's an important thing, but it's not the only important thing. What I realized more than anything else is actually the set of relationships and advice and people that you have around the company are in many ways just as important, if not more so, than the capital itself. And I had seen both from my own experiences and, and those of friends how, you know, uh, you're kind of investors who maybe didn't share the same vision as you or, you know, didn't understand the business deeply could, you know, lead you in the wrong direction or, or you know, it, it, it at least sort of waste a lot of your time. And so... The thing that I prioritized is I wanted to make sure that I had really deep trust with the investors that we were bringing on board and getting involved with the company. And so, um, you know, it was a bit of a unique situation, but that's why our first two rounds of capital were both led um, by actually my co-founder, Eric, uh, who runs a, a venture firm, Bedrock Capital. Um, and so as a result, you know, for the first year and a half plus of the company, our primary investor was also one of my best friends and someone I had been working with for 10 plus years and it just allows you to save so much time. You know, we were, uh, you know, in complete sync about what we were trying to accomplish here and I think really gives you that solid foundation to then build the rest of the thing on top of. Because how much capital have you guys raised to date? Yes, we've raised uh, about $119 million in total at this point. And what has been that journey of uh, going through these uh, different rounds and, and raising all this money? Yeah, so we've, we've raised four rounds now. We've raised... Uh, million dollars from Bedrock right around when we started the company. And um, we raised an $8 million Series A, uh, would have been nine months or so later. We then raised, a, and that was also led by Bedrock with, um, with Thrive and Index both participating. Um, another roughly year or so after that, we raised our Series B. That was a $35 million round um, that was co-led by Thrive and Stripe. Um, and then more recently, just a few months ago, uh, we raised our Series C. That was a $75 million round um, that was led by Stripe. And, and so, you know, as we went through that progression and, and that journey, what I found is that 
you know, it, it goes back to that same principle I just mentioned, which is that you want to know and really deeply trust the folks that you have around the table. It's really hard to to fire an investor. And so if you're going to bring someone, you know, kind of into the fold and be involved with them, you want to really, you know, make sure that you share you know, aligned vision for the company and a view of the world and also a set of values. Um, it's easy for everyone to get along and for th when things are going well, it's it's different when, uh, you know, inevitably, you know, you have an up or a down and, and you've got to really, you know, navigate that. And so I think sort of the consistent theme in all of our fundraisers has been that it hasn't been, hey, here's a pitch deck, you know, let's go, you know, kind of talk to 20 different firms. It's been, who have we developed relationships with that we feel like really deeply understand our business and that who I'm really excited to work with? And let's take a very targeted approach and uh, and have conversations with those folks to uh, you know align the capital around the company. And how is trust built? Because I mean, they're still not investors, right? So so you need to have that trust to really know that they're going to be a good fit. So so how do you build that trust? Yeah, I think you can do it in two ways. Um, one is you can get investors involved, but in smaller ways without having them lead rounds or, or take board seats, that sort of thing. And I think that's a great way to do it. You know, the, it enables you to have sort of minimal downside in, in terms of their impact on the company while really getting to know them and, and frankly, trying to put them to work, see who follows through on, uh, you know, the commitments and things that they say they're going to do. All, all investors are good at selling themselves when they're trying to win a deal. You know, do they follow through on that over the you know months and years to come? I think that's one you know really effective strategy that we've used. And um, I think the other one is you know, find ways to just try and work together, you know, with folks, get to know each other. Certainly in Stripe's case, you know, this goes back to my days at Oyster when we built our subscription billing engine on top of Stripe and, uh, you know, in sort of 2013 timeframe had a whole bunch of, uh, you know, late night back and forth with their support team and, and at times ultimately with, uh, with, with John or Patrick uh, around kind of what we were doing there. And so, you, know, you realize from that, you start to sort of understand the values of an organization and how they approach things. Um, and so that can build trust as well. And and for you guys, COVID was quite an interesting period of time. You know, obviously, a lot of small businesses here that you guys are, are servicing and and definitely, you know, quite a quite a lot of craziness. So so how was that the, that process for you? all? Yeah. So to set the stage here in March of uh, of 2020, when COVID hit. We had just lined up our first two customers, Homebase and Service Titan, and we had just done uh, that Series A round, raising about $8 million. But we were still really small. We were five people, we six. Neither of our customers had actually built on us or launched yet. So it's at, you know, an exciting, but one of those really fragile points in time for the business. And then the whole world shut down. <laughs> and, and we were left sitting there, you know, wondering what was going to happen. Again, our customers serve you know, almost exclusively small businesses. And so it was unclear if their customers were going to be around, you know, a month, six months, 12 months from then. And there was just such a tremendous amount of uncertainty in the world. And so for, you know, a period of several months there, literally on a weekly basis, we were watching the small business numbers, just trying to see how many of them were open and staying in, in really close conversation, you know, with those early customers of ours to understand, I mean, were they going to be in business? Were they going to be building new initiatives like their payroll service? Just truly what was going to happen? Um, so it was, as you can imagine, a, a really stressful time. And I think what I learned from that is two things. Number one, 
so much of entrepreneurship is is not the sexy stuff in the fundraising. It's just putting your head down and doing the work. And so, um, you know, if there was a silver lining to it, it's that we were able to, you know, with really at that point, no distractions in the world other than just what was on the news, you know, locked in our apartments, sit down and just do a ton of building that I think really served us well later on. And then I think the other thing is that we went really out of our way to try and understand for those early customers what did they need? What were the challenges in their business? How could we help them? Um, and we also saw there the fact that they continued to work with us. It really spoke to how important payroll was for them and for their customers and to the future of their companies. The fact that, you know, they they might have even done layoffs, but the fact that they, you know, still stuck with us and, and with building that service really cemented, you know, again, not just a, a vendor relationship, but actually a true partnership between our companies as we work together to build a new business that I think is <laughs> While it was incredibly stressful at the time, I think has ultimately resulted in, you know, much better, deeper relationships for us going forward. And as we're thinking about going forward, imagine you were to go to sleep tonight, Andrew, and you wake up in a world where the vision of Czech is fully realized. What does that world look like? In our view, payroll is something that small business owners and employees shouldn't have to think about. Um you know, I like to rewind. If you go back a hundred years, you start a business, you're, you know, running a little tavern and you need to hire someone to uh, you know, deliver the the beers and, and bust the tables. It's a simple thing to do. You just need to find someone, you know, you can pay them cash. That's the end of it. The modern economy just doesn't work like that anymore. There are now thousands of different taxes, hundreds of different government jurisdictions. Um, you know, it's gotten even more complicated with COVID, with various sick leave laws and these sorts of things. It's actually just the pure um, logistical burden on a small business owner of what it takes to actually run their business is truly really difficult. And I've seen this firsthand from from setting up check and running our own payrolls and registering with with all the different states that we employ people in. You know, it's truly not simple. Our view is that that should really fade into the background and be taken care of by technology. So. Whereas in the past, you know, a small business owner might go to their, you know, local physical bank branch to do their banking and, and maybe get their payroll. Our view is that, you know, all of those typical financial services and all of that, you know, kind of labor management, clocking in and out, all those services, instead of happening, uh, you know, offline with pen and paper at a local bank branch, are going to happen via these vertical SaaS platforms um, and more generally, these software platforms that these small businesses are using. We think these software platforms are now really the, the front door to a whole wide array of financial services um, that these small businesses will be offered. So whether that's payroll, you know, embedded banking, insurance, lending, uh, you know, there's a whole wider industry here that, that's building these out. And, you know, what we're doing with payroll is one piece of that. Now, imagine I put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time to that moment where you were still in, in Google, right? Working at your first job coming out of Duke University and, and imagine you had the opportunity of perhaps, you know, like having a sit down with that younger Andrew and you were able to give that younger Andrew one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now, given now that you've built scaled, you know, exited one company, now you're on your second one you've, where you've raised a bunch of money and and you're doing great things. I mean, what would you tell that younger Andrew? The first thing I'd tell myself is to just do it. It's a piece of advice that I, I give to a lot of other entrepreneurs. I personally think entrepreneurship is incredibly hard to learn by 
taking a class or reading a book or something. There's so many things that are just lived experience. You've got to learn what it takes to, you know, go out and recruit someone or try and convince someone to give you money or convince a customer that they should sign up for your service, even though it doesn't exist yet. And, you know, you can get some of those, I think, by by joining, you know, companies at early stages and trying it. But but more than anything else, I think really, truly just jumping into it was was the most important thing. If I can, I'd give myself one second piece of advice too that that maybe pairs with that one, which is which is be patient. I think, you know, startups are very much a what have you done for me lately type of a game. And and certainly that's true of investors. And I think when you're, you know, twenty two, twenty three, it's hard to see you know, the long arc of time going forward. But company building is not something that happens overnight. It really takes, you know, if you're chasing, at least in my opinion, sort of a big enough vision, that's something that takes years, if not decades, to come for, to fruition. And so, you know, having the vision and the foresight to understand that what we want to accomplish isn't going to happen in the first six months or even the first two years, and it's going to be a process to get there and, and really thinking about, you know, what are the sort of chapters in that journey for the company that you're trying to accomplish, you know, over each, you know, year or couple year period of time. I think that's another thing that has really served me well now. The second time around with Czech that at Oyster, I was maybe a little bit more concerned with just what's right in front of my face and, and what are we doing tomorrow. And Andrew, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I, I'm fairly active on Twitter. Uh, almost ABC is uh, is my handle. My uh, my initials are uh, uh, ACB. So uh, anyway, almost ABC is uh, is is me on Twitter. Or uh, feel free to to shoot me an email too. I'm just Andrew at CheckHQ.com. Amazing. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show. It has been an honor to have you with us. No, it's been a lot of fun, Alejandro. Thanks again for uh, inviting me on today. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.